I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody. We are coming to you live from Studio B here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. It's one, once again another edition of I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker, and as always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning. Guys, what are we doing today? We're talking about a little-known subgenre of fiction, veterans fiction, uh, which I think we should take a step back and actually talk a little bit about what this is, because we're, we're talking about a bunch of books that include stuff from the First World War, stuff from the Vietnam War, uh, and in my case, stuff from the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, but I think there are two kinds of veteran fiction, and we should probably discuss that. A lot of modern uh, fiction before the Second World War was written by people who had seen combat because it was not a volunteer army. Yeah. So we should probably point out that some of the modern veteran fiction that we're reading is really about volunteers who signed up to be in the armed forces. And they have, obviously, a, a very different perspective than, say, the gentleman soldiers, perhaps, of World War I, which, which Jeremy and I are going to talk about, and even some of the people who were conscripted into Vietnam. Uh, many of the modern books, in fact, the book we're going to get to in the second half of the show, Nico Walker's Cherry, he is a, he's a veteran as well, there's a very different perspective of that. And, and Jeremy, of course, you served in the armed forces. And I was wondering if you could just give uh, our, our listeners a couple short hits on what the difference is being in a volunteer army as opposed to being in a conscription public service army. That's an interesting question. And in some ways it's volunteer. In other ways, it's not. I <laughs> When I joined the army, I didn't exactly have uh, everything going for me. You know, I was uh, – I had flunked out of college – I couldn't hold a job. I had substance abuse problems, and uh, <laughs> I went in the army to get my act together, which a lot of people do that. So mm-hmm. you have all, I would say, you know, and from my experience, you know, the guys that just joined for patriotic reasons, I don't know now. You know, I went mm-hmm. in 1989. It was a long time ago, um, 30 years, which is crazy to think about now. But, uh, you know, most of the guys I were in were uh, poor kids from uh Poor kids from the suburbs, poor kids from rural areas, poor kids from the ghetto, and then screw ups from those regions, you know. Or what about uh, like glory hunters? There's some glory hunter, you know. I, from my experience, that's mostly officers. I was enlisted. Um, you guys, a lot of guys going and going in the career. And see, I was in the artillery. The artillery has the lowest ASVAP scores out of any. What does that mean, ASVAP? Uh, ASVAP is the. Uh, Armed Service Vocational Aptitude Board, I think. Okay. Woo! Yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> you, learn, you learn acronyms pretty well while you're in the military, but it's the test to get in. Okay. And um, the, the artillery is lower than the infantry. Okay. And so the officers you get are either had family members that were infantry or they're the bottom of their class. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that being said, I met some of the most amazing people. You know, I, I served over in uh, – Desert Storm. I was at the. Um, I was in the largest tank battle since World War II, the Battle Seventy Three Easting. Um, there's some really interesting. I didn't know that I was in the Battle Seventy Three Easting because it's been written about long after the war, right. and I. One of my buddies got hurt there, and he posted something on Veterans Day. Um, he had gotten hit, and 
you know, he had uh, third degree burns over three quarters of his back. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't know that this was such a significant battle, but it was a very tactical, well put out. I mean, we were, you know, flying around calling in artillery while things were blowing up all around us. So, I mean, it, I wasn't we were like, this is a tactician's dream. You know, it was just right. like, I was just part of it and I didn't know. But that being said, you know, I, um, and, and this is my experience. Everybody, all veterans are different. I know Nico's gotten some flack from some uh, right wing and left wing. Uh, both sides are attacking him because of uh, the nature of his book. But, you know, most people don't go in the military because they're super patriotic. Like, I love America. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great country. Um, um, I love Chicago more, I think. You know, I'm more of a – I would say, like, I, I, I love Chicago um, as a – as a patriot, I guess. I don't know. I love the city. I love the people in it. It's done me really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, cost of education now. Don't. Yeah, and it's yeah. like we have a lot of fundamental flaws. And, and But I, I, you know, I do love America, and I, I won't lie about that. And don't get me wrong. I know it's screwed up. But I think the difference between is everybody has to go or just volunteers. You're just going to get a different type of people. Well, I mean, I think you, you hit on it, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at. The, the people that join a volunteer army nowadays tend to be from uh, what used to be called the lower classes. Yeah. And I think the the some of the books that we're talking about, uh, again, in, in my case, I read a book written by a, a woman who joined the Israeli Defense Forces, and uh, service is mandatory uh, yeah, for all years, Israelis. Right? Um, so, you know, you can't, um, you can't bow out um, of it. Uh, as a result, well, it's interesting with the Israeli forces too. It's it's the Israeli Defense Forces at the IDF. Is yeah. that correct? Uh-huh. They have women in combat roles. Oh yes, and they have for for a long, long time. Yes, they have. And, and in uh, fact, she she saw combat. Okay, uh, all hands on deck. Yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, and it, that's a very different viewpoint uh, again than it is for an all volunteer service that may or may or may not see combat. Of course, but in in the books that you're writing, the World War One especially had a huge cross section of the country, uh, particularly the English forces. Uh, we were just looking at the numbers before the show. You know, one one million Englishmen died in the killing fields of, of Belgium. Uh, it was one of the deadliest combats ever. And, and at the time, the British Empire comprised twenty three percent of the world's population. Yeah, that's uh, and, they, and their their young men were were decimated. You know, during World War One, they lost ten percent of of their young men, basically a generation of, of young men in that battle. But it was a wide cross-section of people that were involved in that conflict. It wasn't just uh, kids from the lower classes. It was everybody. Didn't, right didn't Britain switch at the time from a volunteer army to an, uh, a draft? They, in the middle of the, the They had war? both, yes. They had both. Originally, um, people started signing up, you know, and we were talking about this before the show, and we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about your book, Storm and Steel. But the Yes. The British Army originally had been largely, in fact, aristocratic. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, upper classmen, uh, upper class types were in the military because the military didn't really see any action. You know what I mean? Uh, it was an empire. You know, it, yeah. was, it was an army of occupation more than a, an army of combat. When combat uh, broke out, and of course, when the First World War started over the assassination of the pretext of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, um, they thought it was going to be a simple little six-week conflict and everybody's going to go back to having tea and crumpets. And, of course, it became one of the deadliest battles with 40 million people worldwide killed uh, or wounded in World War I, uh, which was not what anybody expected. It's funny. Well, it's not funny. But when Jamie and I were talking before before the show, too, the 
you know, the the difference between being in a peacetime military in England and maybe overseeing a colony in India or something, um, you know, that that was it was very aristocratic. The officers lived in, you know, very uh, nice places, you know, probably significantly nicer than anywhere I've ever lived. Um, and, you know, and then when you go to this, you know, air, all hands on deck thing, like Mike said earlier, uh, you know, this I've read I, I have a. a I've had a long fascination with the Vietnam War, even before I was in the Army. I've read tons. Uh, I was going to do Dispatches today by Michael Herr. Um, my nephew was in town over Thanksgiving, Jimmy North, who I want to dedicate this show to. Hey, Jimmy. He's uh, He was a veteran in uh, Afghanistan. He fought with the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, and um, he told me about this book. And, um, you know, Jimmy joined. He was one of the guys that uh, he did it because he thought it was his patriotic duty. It's my nephew. He's a great kid. And, uh, you know, people have a tendency to slam on people that join the military. And he just, he thought it was something he needed to do. His father served, his mother served, I served. Um, my sister had a unique experience. Her brother, her husband, and her son all served in combat in the Middle mm. East, you know, and I, that's a that's a hard road to toil. But, of course, uh, we're still in combat in the Middle East. This is the longest conflict we've been involved in in yeah. Afghanistan for, what, is it 13 years now? And, uh, and no, uh, 16. 16, I'm sorry. It's, yeah. it, you know, it's the forever war, as John Haldeman. Well, I mean, when was 9 11? was 2001, right? Yeah. We're mm-hmm. coming up on we Well, we invaded uh, Iraq in 2003. Okay. March of 2003, okay. I think it was. Do you, do you guys want to work backward? Because what we're talking yeah, let's, about. Yeah, let's get, let's get into your book. Then. So I didn't, I didn't have anything on Vietnam. I, I, had a, I read two books. I read one called Redeployment by Phil Clay. He was a, a veteran of the Iraq War. Um, most recent Iraq War, mm-hmm. um, 2014, they won the National Book Award for Fiction. And I was kind of skeptical about it because I feel those awards sometimes they can get very political. It depends on what what's culturally trendy sometimes mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. time. So I was a little skeptical going in, but the stories were great. They're, they're shorts, and they, they all come from different perspectives. So... To back up a little bit, I read two books, this one and For Whom the Bell Tolls, mm-hmm. Hemingway. I read, which is a classic, which I, I've, I haven't read I, since I had high never read it. Oh, you never read I'd it? I'd never read it. Oh, okay. And I, I tried uh, Farewell to Arms, and I, I didn't really care mm-hmm. for it, but I heard really good things about For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm-hmm. And, I love Farewell to Arms, just um, saying. Yeah. Oh, you should read this one. I will. I, yeah, I... You I, know, I haven't read Hemingway since high, uh, since high school, I don't think. I think The Old Man in the Sea was the last one I okay. read. Well, the thing about Hemingway is he has a lot of books, and he's from Oak Park. He's not from Chicago, but he's from a suburb of Chicago, and he's very well known here. And so he's like one of those authors, like Faulkner, who I also mm. love, and I'll pick him up every once in a while and read a book. But like, it's like Hemingway's always going to be there. Faulkner's, I mean, everyone's going to always be there yeah. technically, but you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not hard to come by. So it's like every once in a while, I'll grab a. Yeah, well. I wanted to give it another shot, and the first hundred pages were. Eh. Yeah, I don't know if Hemingway's worn as well as as you think. You his I mean? his dialogue just bugs me sometimes. And the thing yeah. about for whom the bell tolls, it, it's it's about an incident in the Spanish Civil War right. conflict, late thirties, and I think the premise of his dialogue is that a lot of the characters are speaking in Old Castilian, and the mm. way he translates it into dialogue in the book is very ancient sounding so there, there are a lot of thou thy these in, in all the dialogue <laughs> it's like yeah. the bible eh. <laughs> and then yeah. you get about 100 pages in and there's there's a, a minor character named pilar 
she's uh, she fights with the the Republican forces against the fascists in in the Civil War, and she tells this story about how her town revolted against mm-hmm. the fascists, and and it goes on for pages, and she describes the town being taken over, the fascists being held in the whatever the city hall was of that town, and all the citizens of that town forming two lines, two parallel lines to form a kind of gauntlet Mm -hmm. or hallway, and one by one the fascists are brought out to walk the gauntlet. Mm -hmm. uh, And come what may, you know, whatever the citizens want to do, they do to these guys. And then at the end of the line is is a cliff. And oh my God. so long. Well, good riddance to the fascists, but that sounds rough. It, you know, it, it, it was it was one of the more brutal scenes I've read in fiction. I don't know if you guys have read. This is just an interjection, but George Orwell wrote um, a really interesting book called Homage to Catalonia. When he fought, he he was uh, not obviously a conscript because he was he was British, but he fought. Uh, for the Republican side against Franco during the Spanish Civil War as well and survived. So that, that book came out, I think, in 1925. But that's okay. a pretty interesting, also very kind of harrowing tale of fighting in, in the mountains. Okay. Homage to Homage Catalonia. Catalonia. Um, you know who loves that book is Aaron from Princeton Community Books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a big Orwell guy. Um, yeah, Down and Out in Paris and London is a great book. I, yeah, I, will, I read that I in Paris, that. actually. Yeah, yeah I, re- I will Especially recommend Especially if that. you've worked in restaurants. Absolutely, <laughs> if you've worked in restaurants. If you've ever been inside a restaurant kitchen, that is the book for you, my friend. Um, I, I do have to mention, I'm sorry yeah, I keep ahead, interrupting you, Mike, but that scene where he's hunting the pigeon, I think it's in London. Mm-hmm. And it's in book, London, yeah. Yeah, where he's starving. He's, he's starving, he's trying to kill a idiot in the park. He's down and out, all right. Yeah, that's some classic Orwell right there. Anyway, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, the the reason I bring up both books at once is because it you see that that contrast in in perception of right. um, what it's like to to, to fight any war. Um, Hemingway reported on the Spanish Civil War. He served in World War One right. as an ambulance driver. He was writing for the, the Herald front. Tribune, wasn't he? The New York Herald Tribune. I'm not sure. He, I think it, it was the, the the company he was writing for was I think the National Newspaper Alliance, but I'm not sure which paper okay. he was. His column went in. Um, the, the Herald Tribune's come into mind. I believe it was a Hearst paper, and so okay. I think I think that was it. Well, for whom the bell tolls is it's it's a romantic tragedy, which mm-hmm. I guess. Is almost synonymous with Hemingway. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But redeployment, Phil Clay's book from 2014, the stories take m- more peripheral perspectives of war. There's there's a story about a foreign services officer who's who went over to Iraq in 2008 to help, quote unquote, rebuild. Right. And and the the nightmare of bureaucracy that he runs into. Right. There's a story of a, a of an Egyptian American vet in in classes at Amherst on the GI Bill, and it, it makes you think two, three, four times about just what cultural appropriation is. That's that story is called Psychological Operations. It's excellent if you're going to only read one story from redeploy- redeployment. I would recommend Psychological Operations. But um, there's a lot more disillusionment. With war in redeployment than mm-hmm. there is, and that's so seventy five years later than mm-hmm. there is in for whom the bell tolls. Yeah, and there's an interesting corollary. Uh, Rory Stewart, the English author, also served in Iraq in, in two thousand three. He wrote a very interesting first person account of it called "The Prince of the Marshes," uh, oh. that came out a number of years ago. I believe it was a Booker finalist. Uh, don't quote me on that. that but Rory Stewart. That's an interesting book for for listeners who want to learn more about about that. I want to Arizona. toss out. I can't think of the author's name either, but the Yellow Birds is phenomenal. Kevin Powers, yes, Kevin Powers. Kevin Powers. yeah, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, fascinating book. Yeah, and 
the uh, the other thing I was going to mention too is I saw uh, many years ago uh, Tim O'Brien came to the Chicago Public Library. Oh yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I saw him. So I'm a huge Ob- actually. I, I shouldn't say I'm a huge O'Brien fan. I'm a huge fan of the things they carried in his Vietnam literature. Mm-hmm. The stuff after that. I, sorry, Tim, but I don't love it. But he said the way he learned to write. Uh, dialogue is he would uh, listen uh, he would uh, read Hemingway's dialogue and type it over and over again hmm. which is interesting because you don't like it but yeah I <laughs> but I do like Tim O'Brien I love Tim O'Brien that's yeah. interesting and he he basically I mean it was a free library program but he had the entire winter garden on the ninth floor of Harold Washington filled and the Pritzker theater in the basement they had to that's insane they had to close it all off for Tim. Yeah. So yeah. both both of mine are fictional accounts. I don't. Oh, one other thing about things redeployment. Things that carries fiction. That like. The things that carries fiction. It's autobiographical fiction. Right. I was just going to say about the book you chose, Storm of Steel. Oh that's yeah, not, yeah. That's that a memoir. Not, yeah, okay, yeah. that's a memoir. Yeah. Well, I don't think they called. Did they call memoirs? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's such a the M word. The M word. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting. World War One. I. I think we talked about this in a show before, but uh, as you guys know, I'm a huge comic book fan. One of the things I've been making my way through is a, a British comic called Charlie's War, which is set during the First World War. It was written by uh, Pat Mills, who is also the creator of Judge Dredd, if you guys need a cultural touchstone. He ran 2080 Magazine. Um, Charlie's War is actually considered one of the greatest British comics ever done, but it was an unsparing account of a, a poor kid from Liverpool who lies about his age and joins the British Army at 16. Uh, military age was 18. Younger was 17. Yeah, they lied, about, lied about his age, and he fights all through the major battles, the Somme, Ypres, er- everywhere. And it's very accurate, apparently. The, the story and the drawings are, are very technically accurate, the battles he fights in. And it is not... Um, this was kids' literature. You know, it was published in – people probably don't know this, but British comics came in a newspaper broadsheet folded in, in half. So it, think of the New York Times or the, the Chicago Tribune that flipped on its end, and instead of, you know, folding it out like this, you'd fold it out um, sideways like a book. But it was like a big, you know, half tabloid newspaper like the Sun-Times kind of is. That was how British comics came. They didn't come in a comic book. There were, there were all these newsprint things that came out every week on Thursday. And it was in a comic book called Battle, and then I think it was an eagle, but – the point is that this was kids' literature, and and it was a it's very gruesome. I mean, people die every week in the strip. You know what yeah. I mean? And major characters and people are horribly maimed. And and the the interplay between the enlisted men uh, and the the officers is unsparing and cruel. And so you you, you kind of look at it and you're like, this this can't have been just for kids. When was it published? Uh, it started in the I want to say the late '70s and ran through the '80s. Uh, Pat Mills, I think, is now about 70, and his his heyday, you know, Judge Dredd came out when I was a kid. I think their first episode was in 81, I think. Uh, but he, he had had a long career in comics. He had been working in comics since the 70s, the kind of nascent. Uh, British British comics started about the same time as American comics, and because British... British publishers didn't buy the rights to American publications like Marvel and DC. There's this whole weird, uh, at least weird if you look at it through the prism of American comics, a whole set of British superheroes and British funny animal stories and British horror stories and British magazines that were completely different uh, than anything you would have seen in America. Um, because they didn't have Superman and Batman and stuff like that. They, they had their own. They had Miracle Man was the, the hero. But I, I digress. But it was, it was probably you know late 70s, early 80s when this stuff was coming out. Okay. So, but it was, you know, you think about that, it was, it was for kids, you know, and that to me is remarkable, unsparing stories about war, not at all glorified, 
you know, there were other, you know, magazines. And I think, you know, we remember comics when we were a kid, like Our, Our Army at War and, you know, Private. I remember uh, Nick Fury, you know, and all that. Sergeant kind of stuff. Slaughter? Sergeant Slaughter. Not well, the wrestler. Not the wrestler, but, but yeah. yeah. But, you know, the glory of, you know, here's the flying men and the planes and, you know, yeah. you know, all this. This was not it. It was trench warfare and it was gruesome and, and dirty. And, of course, that's what your book is about as well. Uh, it's the dirtiest of them all. I, it's in, uh, It's funny. I hadn't heard of this book I, I, I mentioned earlier, my nephew Jimmy told me about it when he, I told him we were doing the show. He's like, you got to read Storm of Steel by Ernst Jünger. I've never heard of it. It's very famous in Germany. Um, Jünger's a little bit controversial. He is, yeah. Yeah, he um, he was a, he was a, a, a ph- philosopher, and he was kind of the Nietzsche, like, strength will win overall. And he was also a nationalist. Yeah. Um, but... I think he was accused of being a national socialist, right. specifically a Nazi. Yeah, and then I, I don't know if that was ever true. It ever was proven. not true, actually. Well, but he was accused of it. He was accused, and Hitler actually asked him to sit on the Reichstag, and he declined. And he was not uh, supportive of the Nazi Party, but he that these books were very popular with the Nazis, and I didn't know any of this history. I just read the book, and then right. I, I researched for the show. But one of the things that is talked about quite a bit and carl marlantes he's a vietnam um writer who was he's also very uh uh he's seen quite a bit in the ken burns documentary but he was talking about you know that this guy was one of the straight he was a warrior okay he was injured anywhere between seven and 14 times um depending on how you count it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because, like, one time he got shot three times, and he was counting his bullet holes, you know. And what was crazy about this this conflict is, like, you'd get shot, and if you didn't lose a limb or get paralyzed or die, right? they'd basically bandage you up, and you'd be back in a trench. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about the, the, the nature of what these battles were like, sure. what trench warfare was? Because we, I, I feel like that phrase, trench warfare, is synonymous with World War One, but People right. now don't really have an uh, an imagery of well, how horrific it, it was. It's hard to wrap your head around. Right. Um, but basically, you know, he was a, a German soldier, and they were fighting the British in France. Well, they're, they're in France and Belgium. They were on the border. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that okay? Yeah, that's why the yeah. Battle of Ypres was in was in Belgium. So it, the the two armies agreed right. to meet in France. So France and Belgium were the theater for the okay. war. Uh, and it was took place in the woods and along the road. But what they did is they cleared forests and dug trenches to fight in, which sounds bizarre. Yeah. But the reason they did it is because they dug trenches so that tanks could not cross the lines. The, the trenches were initially made to stop tanks because the tank oh. at that time was the big step forward in warfare. Yeah. Tanks existed, but they could not cross trenches. So they dug m- hundreds of miles, networks of trenches, and supplies would come to the men. And then the men would fight by going from trench to trench, trying to cross the trenches in mud. And rain and, and rats. Yep. And I mean, oh, and I mean, that's where the storm of steel, the title comes from. Right. The storm is. Artillery, shrapnel, yeah, artillery, machine mortars, and grenades, yes. machine gun yes. fire. You, you, yes. you put your your head up above the trench, and you're getting smoked. Yes. Well, one of the two of the most intense and bananas, absolutely bananas parts of this book are one. There was a, a 
these guys would, you know, relieve battalions or relieve other units, and they would just cover the bodies with dirt and make walls out of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there'd be walls, mm-hmm. and and then a, a, a mortar find... shell would come and hit, and there would just be body parts flying everywhere, yep. and it would blow holes, and you'd be sitting on top of one of your dead colleagues, like, fighting back. Yep. And, I mean— it's, it's incredibly gruesome. Yeah, you know, and the smell and yeah. the rat. They, he said the rats were just like, you know, they would come out and like. They were in heaven. I mean, they had a, yeah, a, a, it was just food swarms yeah. of rats we, and we, disease. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we were talking uh, about uh, body count before. We were talking about the Ken Burns Vietnam docu- documentary right. and the, the obsession with uh, body count in the U.S. military. The, the, well, in the, Vietnam. The count, the, in Vietnam. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they weren't real. Ba- they weren't. Uh, Tactical battles that we we're used to in, in World War right. One, World War The II, counts right. on on some of these battles oh. on like day one, oh. we're talking like tens of thousands, yeah, yeah seven hundred thousand or something like that in a single battle. Yeah, I mean, un- unbelievable. And Younger's brother actually was with him too, and his brother got shot in the knee. And in fact, he talks about after the war's over, meeting his brother and another guy, and his brother's knees all stiff, and he's been hit mm-hmm. multiple times. But there's a there's a, a in World War One, too, they introduced a, a new, fun, exciting part of warfare known as gas. Right, and mm-hmm. uh, they use chlorine gas in, in, in oh. this book, and, and oh. you know, it's like think about breathing in chlorine from a swimming pool in gas form. Yeah, but Mike and I were actually talking about this a little this morning. The technology wasn't great. So, you know, they were they were launching it, and then it would land, and you could actually see it. You know, it's like yeah. if you think of, like, the riots in Paris right now, you know, see the tear gas. And so the, the distribution wasn't very accurate, nor was it uh, effective always. So you could see it a lot of the times, and they would get gas, and you could cover your face. But the guys that actually breathed it in, you basically, like, died puking up blood. Yes, you died from the inside out as your lungs dissolved. Yeah, that yeah, that's mustard, what he yeah. talks about that. Yeah, and you had mustard gas as well. And every soldier was issued gas masks, and sometimes they didn't work. There was actually um, oh yeah one of the big scandals in England, I, I remember, um, from Charlie's War, was somebody sold defective gas masks, and a whole, you know, troops were dying because uh, they didn't have the proper uh, retention. But... I mean, it, the war itself was incredibly brutal. One of the things, of course, in Storm and Steel is the hand-to-hand combat fighting. Ugh. People don't realize it was close quarters with bayonets. You know, you you couldn't, as Mike mentioned, if you stuck your head over the trench, you'd get killed. When waves of people came over the trenches, they would jump into the trenches and fight the people in the trenches. So think about this for a second. You were fighting hand-to-hand combat with knives and, and bayonets. Well, one of the most intense, so... They used barbed wire, razor wire, yeah. and the mm-hmm. guys, they were wire teams, and they'd go out and lay wire, and then they were... They were also miners and sappers. Yeah, wire reconnaissance teams would go out and cut right. the wires, and, and Junger went out on some of those missions, and he, one night, they went out and cut some wire, and two soldiers, two British soldiers came out and set up a machine gun yeah. uh, encampment, or yeah. right, basically on top of Junger, and he laid there and played dead, popped a grenade, and, you know, mm-hmm. and just... And, and they would run and, and do these reconnaissance missions. A lot of times it was like they were just throwing grenades back and forth at each other and fighting. I'm getting all excited, but it's... It's, it's <laughs> maniacal. It's bananas, yeah. 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 And it's mind-boggling. And um, have you guys ever seen Passive Glory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's Kubrick's first movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a book, too, and I can't remember the author. But that's a phenomenal uh, a novel, too, and, and movie. And it was... In the in the Kubrick version, it looks like they're fighting on the moon. It's kind of yeah. Kirk Douglas, right? Kirk Douglas yeah, is yeah. in Passport, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I, that just popped in my head. But that's a that's kind of a rah rah. It's mm. not quite as um, no. Of course, then he would go to Full Metal Jacket, which was also not rah rah. No, Kubrick, no, uh, no, 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 late Kubrick. Did but, Junger yeah. write this right at, right after the war? He wrote, was, he wrote it diaries, during his diaries, yeah. and that's oh. one of the things yeah. that a lot of the criticisms talk about because usually these guys come home, like Walker's an example, uh, who we're going to feature this afternoon. You know, he was in jail. He wrote his book in jail. He had a lot of time to, mm-hmm. you know, meditate on or whatever you want to call it, think about his experience. This was just as it happened, and one of the other criticisms, too, there's no philosophical there's no patriotism. It's just basically this dude's a straight soldier and he's a killing machine and he just kills and kills and kills and watches people die until the war is over. Yeah, which, of course, is probably more accurate. Accurate, yeah, yeah. I would say, especially yeah. in that time. Yeah. With that, we, we do have to take a little break. And as, as uh, Jeremy's just mentioned, we have an interview with Nico Walker. Uh, Nico, as we've also mentioned, is in jail. So we have an unusual segment. We've prepared his answers, which he's written to us. You can hear that right after the break. Uh, thanks for listening to I-94 this year. We do have one episode that will air Christmas, but this is our last live episode for uh, 2018. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. We'll be back in 2019, but don't go anywhere. More I-94 after the break. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hey, welcome back to another edition of I-94. This is kind of an unusual episode. It's actually, I believe, our last episode uh, for 2018 as well. Yes, sir. We'll be back in uh, January of 2019 with new books and new authors. But today in the second half of our program, we're discussing the book Cherry. It's a novel out by Nico Walker. It's out now from Knopf. Uh, It's gotten a lot of interesting notice, and Jeremy, you actually brought this book to the table. There's some interesting uh, things and a little hurdle we're going to talk about in a second. But Jeremy, take us through why you chose this book. Well, there's been a lot of there was a lot of press about this particular novel. It's about a recover. No, he's not recovering. It's about a, a returning veteran from Iraq, a medic who ended up becoming a heroin addict and robbing banks. And the the author and I have been in communication, um, Nico and I. And it's not an it's not he didn't he said it's not a hundred percent autobiographical, but that is his story. He was in Iraq. Um, he uh, came back, got hooked on heroin, and then uh, started robbing banks. And he's currently incarcerated. That's why we're unable to uh, interview him on the radio today. But we will we will talk about it in a second. Um, and it has gotten a lot of advanced praise. Uh, it was I believe it was named also as one of the ten best books of the year was it? in a couple outlets. Yeah, it's, I've seen it. I've seen it pop up. Yeah, it's been also criticized in some quarters for its portrayal of female characters. Uh, some uh, reviewers have said it's misogynist. Um, And we asked Nico about this all directly. Now, this gets to the point that I kind of wanted to make earlier. As Jeremy mentioned, uh, Nico is in in the Federal Correctional Institution in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, We're not allowed to interview people who are in federal prisons on the radio. However, uh, Mr. Walker was kind enough to respond to a series of written questions that we sent him. And our normal reader, Shanna Van Volt, is going to read his answers. Now, We're also going to intersperse some of these answers with readings from the book, as we normally do on 994, but I do want to make uh, one clarification and note. Some of the language in the book and some of the language that Mr. Walker uses is not allowed uh, by FCC rules on our airways. We don't censor things here. um, So what we've done is instead of uh, what we usually do is slightly alter the language to make it a little more family friendly. Today, we're not doing that because we don't want to take away from what Mr. Walker's saying. And and we want to be very respectful of the fact that he took time out in a very difficult situation to, to do this interview with us. So some of the language is bleeped. You can just kind of 
put your heads together. But, but we felt very strongly that we didn't want to change anything that he was saying. Unfortunately, however, due to the rules, we do have to omit some of it. We hope you're understanding of that. Um, that's going to follow. We're going to talk about that for a minute. And this kind of wraps up uh, an entire show that we've done on, on veterans literature. And guys, just before we get into the interview and before we start these questions, I just wanted to ask you guys real quick, 2018 has been a, a good year for us. We've talked to a number of very oh, interesting yeah. authors. We, we've, we've heard from a lot of people. Is there a memory, guys, that sticks out to you as we, as we close out the year? I, I can tell you who my favorites were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Megan O'Giblin. O'Giblin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ingrid Contreras. Yep. Um, I liked Aki Obeas quite a lot. Oh, yeah. Aki was great. Um, actually, I mean, we had so many. Um, so for some of our listeners that don't know this, we started this with from scratch, basically, and it's turned into something that we couldn't imagine. And I did want to thank the people that listened to the show um, for another year. Um, I, like I said, I have never been on the radio before. Jamie has, Mike hasn't. We just love to read. None of us have PhDs in literature. We just do this out of love of literature. And what's happened is I've just we've had so many uh, positive experiences with authors. Uh, Gary Indiana, absolutely. Oh yeah, Gary Great. Indiana was mm-hmm. one of my favorite. I mm-hmm. there's he's someone that's so underrated, and I admire his work so much. And after and he's such a like down to earth, humble, mm-hmm. nice guy. Um, and that's you know. These are the people I want to promote, or we want to promote, is you know the right. the good folks out there, and um, and I I think the other highlights for me was just doing the shows at the Dial and Pilsen. Oh yes, yeah. um, yeah. Aaron and Mary are ex- excellent hosts. They were so kind to let us set up in their beautiful bookstore. So I'll shut both of them, both yeah. of them. Yeah, I mean I'm, I second everything you're saying. Um, from our first show in January of. 2017. 2017. Yeah. Um, we were we were just going off the cuff talking about books we were reading at the time. From yeah, we interviewed Mary Wisniewski, you know, and then the next episode closet, was really. on <laughs> was on yeah before the studio was finished or, right. or yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very gracious too. And this year, some of my favorites: Megan O'Giblin for sure, uh, Dubrovka Grasich. Mm-hmm. That, that was an That's awesome show. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the Archipelago show. Um, she moved on. I forget, I can't remember the name of the woman we interviewed. She was she was uh, an associate at Archipelago. I can't remember her name either. But we talked about some of their line. They of course uh, right. had the rights to the to the Nosgard right. books. Yeah. Um, she went and, on to Catapult, like Catapult Press, but I can't remember her name. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but really, the the steam that we've picked up is has been unbelievable, and the, and and the response we get from authors is. Is kind of surprising, you know. There's this feeling because we, we we weren't schooled in literature and we don't have degrees that we're kind of locked out. But that hasn't been the case at all. No. We've been reached out to by. I, I've just been impressed. You know, I, I look back at the show and we've done now 53 episodes. There will be a, a 50th episode that is airing out of order. We taped it in October, but it will air over the Christmas holidays. Um, that is that was the a, one with your mom. Yeah, that was oh, the one okay. with Janice Law and Frankenstein. We did that at the Daily Library, but it was that was technically our 50th show. Uh, we're up to 54 now, and I, I'm just continued to be surprised by how many 
good shows and good interviews and, and good sports the authors have really been in talking to us. I can count on, I'm not going to name names, but I can count on literally one hand, I think, the number of interviews and shows that have kind of gone south for us. Three. I can think of three. I can think of three, but I'm not, we're not going to name names. <laughs> no, I am not going to name names. But, no, but we're, it, not, we're not here to abuse people. And so. it, it's, it's, it's remarkable because, you know, it really shows me, and I think one of the most uh, rewarding things about it is it shows me people still care about reading books, which is, I think, something we all doubted when we started this show. We, we loved reading books. We, we want to talk about the love of books. And we've been very lucky to be able to talk with people at all levels of the business, whether they're editors, they're, they're translators, mm-hmm. they're proofreaders, they're other enthusiasts like ourselves, and authors. And, and you know, uh, when you see some of the names of the people that we've been able to talk to, uh, it's, it's gratifying to know that a small town radio in, in a big city in Chicago uh, can get some of those people. The, another favorite show, Corinne Halbert. And, yes, and, absolutely. And your history of uh... history of EC Comics. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> the history, and I, I got It's coming to me now. Sergio de la Pava. Oh, Sergio! Yes, yes. Sergio so is a, a badass, yeah. and he is the uh, the epitome of a cool author. Yeah, a really good guy. And I'd have to say my favorite was Jim Gower. Oh, oh yes, yeah. Jim, Jim Gower. Absolutely, yes. Jim Gower. Novel Great. Explosives. I yep. just talked to him. We yeah. love every. We love all you guys. Yeah, yeah. we Thank really you so much. To Thank you guys. Yeah. So, without further ado, again, this is a presentation of uh, both the words of Nicholas Walker. He's the author of Cherry out now from Knopf, as well as some selections from his book. We guys hope you enjoy. It. We will see you in 2019 from all of us at I 94. Happy holidays and thank Happy you. Happy New Year. Thank you. I could relate to the total disillusionment that one feels as an enlisted man. How do you think the mass media affects our views on what the military is? That's an interesting question. I don't think anyone's asked me that yet. First thing that comes to my mind right now is how all of us who came of age around 9-11 had been fed a diet of that greatest generation nonsense. Nothing against anyone, but like, is this the same greatest generation that sent kids to Vietnam? The same one that invented TV commercials? Anyway, there was The Greatest Generation, and it was on TV and in movies, and I remember there was all that. And then there were these wars that started, and a lot of us who were kids and were dumb and didn't know any better got to thinking that we were doing something wrong if we didn't do our part. I remember feeling altogether wrong about other kids going through it when I wasn't going through it. Whatever it was, it didn't matter what it was about. I voted for Carrie, and when Carrie lost, I said, well, they're going to keep sending those kids over there to get messed up, so I guess I better go and get mine too, or I'm going to feel like a real bastard about it. And I signed up as a healthcare specialist because that seemed kind of ethically all right-ish and morally neutral. By the time I was out of AIT, though, I was on board with the program. I didn't mind carrying a gun or anything like that, which I regret now. But it's weird. People will give you a hard time for showing the military as it really is, and I can't figure out why they'd be so protective of this myth, so defensive about it. Like there was a critic said even flag-burning hippies should, he actually said should, want to punch me in the nose. And I'm thinking, thanks a lot. When I get shot up by some jingo, remind me to haunt you. And this was on a sort of news website, which I'm not sure, but I think isn't exactly hard right-wing stuff. Of course, the reviewer was a guy who hadn't ever served himself. He'd been some kind of war correspondent, I guess. Probably that's got him laid a few times, and then he doesn't have any blood on his hands, so good for him. The scene with Lieutenant Evans burying the trucks was a classic example of FUBAR. Why do you think the military still puts the enlisted in the hands of recent college grads? Tradition may be more than anything. Certainly elitism, too, though the officers are often lower middle class and working class people who see the military as their way up. Still, when they get there, there's a lot of them you'll see who have a bad attitude. Condescending, you know. 
I've been to college and I didn't learn anything there that had helped me in the combat zone, that's for sure. Of course, I went on a liberal arts course of study, so maybe if I'd done something in, like, say, applied sciences, it would have been different. Neither here nor there. My favorite thing about officers and the lifers, the higher-up NCO types, is how they're always giving each other medals, giving each other bronze stars and whatever for typing the patrol rosters into Excel spreadsheets all year. Something really comical about that. You've got to see it to believe it. Our first raid was on an apartment complex north of the big Shia city. We came up in a wedge formation over a long stretch of open ground looking up at a lot of windows. It had been raining. I thought, this isn't a bad way of drawing fire. All I had was a 9mm pistol and everyone else had a proper gun and I felt like a fool. I asked the sergeant nearest me, am I supposed to have my weapon drawn? Cause I don't know, it seems kind of stupid. Staff Sergeant Green had been an NYPD cop. He had enlisted after September 11. Then he said he killed 15 Hajis in 2003. He was no faker. He said, shut up. So I drew my pistol and I did my best, but I had my mind made up to look into getting a better gun when I got back to the FOB. A lot of bomb-making material was found in the apartment of an IP captain and he was detained. We also found a few dozen mortar rounds and 155mm shells all around the grounds behind the buildings. 155s were the big ones. You hit an IED with a couple 155s in it and you were having a bad day. Probably your last bad day. So we gathered up all of those and brought them back with us and rode back to the FOB with them rolling around on the floors of the tracks wondering if we'd suddenly disappear. We went back to the big Shia city for the Ashura. 100,000 pilgrims would be there. At least 100,000. We expected attacks. We were staying at the police station through the week, a whole platoon's worth of us. I was doing a turn on radio guard. It was in the middle of the night. Valentine's Day was coming up and there was a laptop with internet in the radio room, so I got an idea about ordering Emily some flowers. I had my debit card on me. I asked Staff Sergeant Castro and he said I could use the computer. Castro was laid back. I went online and found an affordable orchid for 110 bucks. It had to be an orchid, nothing else would do. I couldn't come up with anything good to put on the card. I was tired, I guess. I ended up typing the bouquet of parentheses from Seymour, an introduction. I thought she'd know what it was. I signed love and my initials. Staff Sergeant Castro asked me if I was a rich kid. I said not especially, but we never starved or nothing. In the morning, I was in the back courtyard guarding things as I often was, and it was getting in the morning because the flies were out. The flies landed on your lips and walked around. Then they went to go get more crap on their feet. There was crap everywhere, so it was easy enough that they'd come back and they'd walk around on your lips some more. It got you only noticed when they weren't around. I heard some yelling and two IPs crashed through a door in the courtyard. They were wrestling over a 9mm Glock. Both of the IPs were wearing plain clothes. They looked like 1970s TV detectives with their slacks and their mustaches and their leather jackets. I knew the gun was loaded. People don't usually wrestle over unloaded guns and it was a Glock, so there was no safety switch on it. I didn't know if I was supposed to shoot them, so I just stood there. Some more Haji cops ran out and they pulled the two apart and one of them got run off and somebody threw a shoe.
Uh, Nico, what would you say your literary influences are? Hemingway, Henry Miller, Rimbaud, Bukowski, Thomas McGuane, Dostoevsky, 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 Donald Ray Pollock, too many people to name. I've ripped off so many people, we'd be here all day if I were going to tell you about it. But I'll say I learned the trick from Hemingway where you don't explain a lot when the point of the story is in the empty spaces. I respect Miller and Rimbaud and Bukowski because they didn't care if you liked them or not. There are writers who will worry they'll give themselves away as creeps or jerks or whatever by way of what they write. They worry that the reader will believe that what's in the book is true about the writer. So they'll go out of their way to put a bunch of disclaimers and opinions in their books and it reads false and awful. They'll try and write edgy stuff, but all the while they'll make sure to distance themselves from it, say, no, this isn't me, this isn't what I do, because they want to stay respectable. They don't shit where they eat. But if you want to write something meaningful, you have to have your heart in it. And you can't write something beautiful if you lie and act like everything's beautiful or everything's clean or pure. You have to have that contrast, because that's how life is, and that's what we're supposed to be writing about. It's like balancing tragedy and comedy. That's life. I learned that from reading McGuane and Dostoevsky and really all the old Russians. All the old Russians will teach you that. If you can't make the reader laugh, you'll never break the reader's heart. And you've got to give people what they relate to. And you've got to respect your characters. Nothing worse than saying, this guy's good and this guy over here's bad. You start doing that and you're writing trash. Cherry was opposite of most debut novels I've read. I thought the second half was stronger than the first. It seemed like you found your stride without having to tie any bows or add any dumb plot twists. Were you ever tempted, or was it ever suggested by your editors? That's probably on account of I wrote the second half after I figured out what I was doing, maybe a little. As far as plot twists, I don't think I could even do one of those if I wanted to. I wouldn't want to, but still, I, I don't even think I could. That's just not how I work. I work in sentences. Broadest of terms, I'll think in a couple pages. I want it to sound good. I get a collection of pages going, and when it adds up to a book, that's when I'll start to worry. Nico, I hated the ending, but I also loved the ending. I didn't want it to end that way, and yet I knew it had to end that way by how I felt, which was sort of like the reprieve of drugs and alcohol with the knowledge in the back of my mind that I'm probably in for some pain later on. What feeling told you that I sent it home was the right end? About right before I finished the manuscript, the first one that was complete, beginning to end, I got it in my head that under no circumstances was the narrator going to go to jail in the book. I don't like jail, and I wasn't about to send the narrator to jail. Believe what you want about where he ends up, but I wasn't going to show that. Maybe I ought to have said spoiler alert just now, but that was what I was feeling when I wrote it. As far as would the narrator recover, would his girl recover, I figured that was best left unsaid as well, because it wasn't what the book was about. They're books about recovery, and this isn't one of those. Did you have an intent in uh, not naming the narrator, or was it just easier to write that way? I had tried some names. None of the names was any good, so I said, new plan, no name. And it was for the best. The name didn't ever come up on its own, so I'd have gone out of my way to just check that box, so to speak. And it could have had a negative impact on the book to throw something in that wasn't necessary, that didn't come up in a way that was natural. Writing a book, you're always one sentence away from turning your book into something awful, so you can never be too careful. The prison and the military seem to have uh, a lot of similarities and differences. Could you expound a little bit on that? Yeah. Both places you have to do the whole obsequious routine, and you're always having to hide how you really feel about just about everything, which is a drag. 
Also, both places, it's about impossible to starve to death, so that's another thing. Truth be told, though, the military prepared me for prison in a lot of ways. In prison, you're nothing, and I already knew I was nothing from being an infantry company. Nico, how has your life in prison changed since publishing the book? How have your prospects for re-entering civilian life changed? Life in prison hasn't changed much. I spend more time doing interviews than I did before I wrote a book. I get letters from strangers, and that wasn't the case before. And then I've got guys coming up to me sometimes asking me if I can hook them up with my publisher, like it's just that easy. Anyway, apart from that, it's about the same. My prospects for civilian life has been proved. I'm going to write, I'm going to try and keep making money at it too. After I get out, I'll have a little time before I have to worry about being broke again, so I've got a minute before I need to put just anything out. Still, I'm going to try and be productive. I don't want anyone saying I just got lucky with my first and last book. I've got a chip on my shoulder, really. Smurfball's incident was hilarious and alarming at the same time. Why do I put veterans on pedestals when this is fairly typical behavior? In regards to putting veterans on pedestals, our country abroad is aggressive and militaristic, so it makes sense that there would exist a culture wherein military service is held up as an ideal and veterans are venerated. It gets a little cliched and a little tiresome, but it can't be helped. People seem to like it, so that's how it's going to go. Year in, year out. Football season, drone strikes, Thanksgiving, Call of Duty 29, AR-15s under the tree at Christmas. This is America. It's really weird that such a small percentage of the population actually does serve, given the percentage of the population that plays Call of Duty or whatever the games are called. Really, we've got a lot of soft people with these mass murder fantasies running through their heads all the time. I get scared just thinking about it. How do you get to be a scumbag? I got to be a scumbag because I needed money and because I was hanging around dope boys too much. The night wasn't especially good. We drove around all night, Raul and Ryder and I. We were looking for a certain car. We were going to rob the guy who owned the car, but we didn't ever find him. We went to his house, Ryder said. He's not here, Raul said. Are you sure this is his house? Ryder said, I'm positive. But he said it like he wasn't positive. Ryder had a scar, a crescent that traced the left side of his face. It wasn't from an accident, somebody had cut him. I bought heroin from Ryder when there was nothing else. Ryder was bad news. He had asked me if I could kill somebody for him. He needed me to kill somebody because he owed a lot of debt money and it was the best way to clear his debt. Ryder was in trouble. He didn't tell me that part. He just said I'd make 10 racks if I killed this guy. Anyway, I said no. Ryder was full of crap. He was the type who lied to you about what time of day it was and for no reason. He was the type to get people into situations and hope they'd perform miracles for him. Ryder didn't even carry his own weight, but he was Raul's boy and Raul would believe him like he believed him about his car. Eventually I got tired of him. I said to Raul, this probably isn't happening. We dropped Ryder off. I was burned out and I felt like crap. I hated the way I felt. I said to Raul, what about the other thing? I, I can definitely do that. He said, yeah, let's do that. I said, all you have to do is drive. I'll do all the work. He said, okay. It was a quarter to six in the morning and I was about to be sick. I had no heroin and I had no money and I owed Raul $600. He didn't want to front me anymore. I said, you know I can't do anything if I'm sick. He had me take him to a trap house. He came out with a gram. He said that was it though. I dropped him off at his girl's house. I said I'd call him in the afternoon. Then I went home. It was quarter to seven. Snow was on the ground. It was old snow, dirty and iced over. Sometimes I'd forget what month it was. Emily and Lavinia were in bed. I woke them. It was warm upstairs. 
My heart ached. It was good. Emily got up. Lavinia went back under the covers. She liked it there. She liked to sleep in the morning. Emily and I shot up and got ready to go. I dropped Emily off. She said she wouldn't mind taking the bus home. I said I had to go to my parents' house for something. She was fine with that. Maybe my mom would give me some groceries to bring home. Maybe my dad would give me some folding money. I parked and I went to class. I wanted to feel as normal as I could feel for a few hours. I wanted to pretend I was polite society. I wasn't supposed to meet up with Raul till three o'clock. I got home at half past noon and I let Lavinia out. I had been by the Wendy's and I bought her a cheeseburger. She wolfed the cheeseburger down in about two seconds and she looked at me like, where can we get another one of those? She reminded me of myself, insatiable. I shot the last of my dope. I smoked a cigarette. Hey, Nico. So this is the last one. I found it troubling that reviewers discuss misogyny in your writing. It disappoints me that a fair reader could not emphasize with someone who has a dope fiend and a state-sanctioned killer. How do you feel about the PC mania influencing our discourse? As for people who've written that I portrayed women in a negative light, I wonder how they felt about my portrayal of men. Like, when critics say that young women are being portrayed as useful for only sex, what do they think about how young men are portrayed as being useful only for killing and being killed? Anyway, I feel like women come off better in the book than the men do, most of the time at least. The book's unfortunate because it's got a basis in reality, and a, it's a reality that's unfortunate. And all I can say is that it is what it is. The narrator definitely says some stuff I wouldn't personally say, like I haven't ever called a woman the C-word in my life. That hasn't ever happened. But I meant for the narrator to be flawed, in other words, human. So yeah, the narrator does and says a lot of things I wouldn't personally recommend, like heroin, for example. I definitely wouldn't recommend heroin to anyone unless he or she's a billionaire and got some laxatives and hooked up with something pharmaceutical grade. Also, I wouldn't recommend armed robbery. I wouldn't recommend joining the army. All I set out to do was give something real, something that was true to the reader, and I don't feel bad about how I'm perceived on account of what I write, because as long as I'm true to what's real and my heart's in it, no one can run me down. About PC mania, you've got sick people out there. Some of them don't even know they're sick. They scare me a little. But then so do Nazis. I believe in the First Amendment, though. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the currently incarcerated Nico Walker, author of the book Cherry, out now from Penguin Random House. Special thanks to Shanna Van Volk. This episode first aired on December 16, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.